So our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Jonah, chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 7 through 10. Jonah 1, 7 through 10. If you would follow along with me. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Amen. Being a Christian means doing hard things. Uh, This might come as somewhat of a surprise to you. Uh, Some Christians seem to think that once you become a Christian that your life will get much easier. After all, uh, once you become a Christian, you are now on God's side. So people assume, well, if I'm on God's side, then my life will get much easier. But that's not the case. Because of my ministry here, people will tell me their secrets. Here's part of what I've learned after listening to the secrets of Christians. No Christian has an easy life. Some secrets that I do hear are joyful secrets. Uh, Some people are very excited about what God is doing in their lives. They can't wait to share their secrets with others. But many secrets that I hear contain pain and struggle and sorrow. Christians' lives are just hard. God asks these Christians to go through hard things and to do hard things. He always has. Let's think about the hard thing that God had asked Jonah to do. What was the hard thing God wanted him to do? God had asked Jonah, a patriotic Jew, to bring a message of God's mercy and grace to Israel's worst enemies, to the Assyrians. If the Assyrians would repent of their wicked ways, God would forgive them. Now, did Jonah actually want to see the Assyrians repent? No. Jonah wanted the Assyrians wiped off the face of the earth. But God gave to his prophet Jonah the hard assignment of embracing Israel's enemy. God asked Jonah to embrace the other with a message of God's mercy. Now, it's not just Jonah who was told to embrace the other. You too have been commanded by God to love your enemies. Let's read out loud together from Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Verses 44 through 47. Let's read together. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. Every Christian then is commanded to love his enemies. We are called to embrace the other, just as Jonah was called to embrace his enemies, the Assyrians. 
Now, it's not clear in the book of Jonah if Jonah actually ever did embrace his enemies. What is clear is that he needed a change of identity if he were to embrace the other. And we too need a change of identity if we are to love our enemies. So let's look at some ways that we identify ourselves and how those identities need to change so that we can embrace the enemies that we have. First of all, you can get your identity from your race when you fail to embrace the other. In Jonah chapter 1 and verse 7, the sailors try to figure out who is to blame for the violent storm that has come up on the sea that they are dealing with. The sailors know that this is no ordinary storm, it's an act of God. And so they cast lots to determine who is responsible. Lots are something similar to dice. They were either sticks or stones that had markings written on them, and those markings that turned up on the lots would determine the answer to their question. And what was the answer that the lots gave according to verse 7? Who was responsible for the storm? Jonah. Now, this might seem to be a contradiction to verse 4, where we read that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. This verse, verse 4, seems to indicate that it was God who was responsible for the storm. And so, which is it? Is it God who is responsible for the storm, or is it Jonah? The Bible's answer is yes. Both are responsible. God is sovereign over all that happens in this world, including the weather. God is in control of it all. But we too are responsible. We make real decisions which have real consequences. In this case, Jonah made the decision to disobey God, to run away from where he was supposed to go because he didn't want anything to do with God's command. And as a result, God sent a storm to get Jonah's attention. So what do the sailors do as soon as they determine that Jonah and Jonah's God are responsible for the storm? They quickly ask Jonah a series of questions in verse 8 about his identity. Remember, the sailors are in a panic at this moment. The winds are blowing at probably hurricane force. The waves are crashing over the deck, and so they're trying to find out as quickly as possible who Jonah is, who his God is, so that they might appease the God of wrath who has poured out this storm on Jonah. And so they speak as quickly as possible their questions, and they say to Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come to us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? The sailors are essentially asking Jonah, who are you? And an essential part of who you are is whose you are. Who or what do you worship? Now, in Maine, people might think that that is a ridiculous question to ask. They might say, well, people no longer believe in God or in gods. That's superstition. So the idea that your identity is rooted in what you worship, that's irrelevant today. But actually, that is not true. Everyone worships. 
Even people who say they don't believe in God, they are worshiping something. Everyone says to himself or herself, I am significant because of this. And they say, I am acceptable because I am welcomed by them. Can I tell you something? Whatever this is, and whoever they are, those are your gods. Those are the ones that you worship, and those are the ones that even secular mainers will worship. These gods tell us the deepest truths about who we are. The sailors knew that identity is always rooted in the things that we look toward to save us, the things to which we give ultimate allegiance. To ask then, who are you, is to ask, whose are you? And what is the first answer that Jonah gives to that question in verse 9? What does Jonah say, first of all, about himself? I am what? I am a Hebrew. Jonah goes first to his race. I am a Jew. Now, this question about his race was the last question that the sailors asked him, but it was the very first question that Jonah answered. Jonah's race was more important to him than anything else about him. And as far as Jonah was concerned, there were the Jews and there was everybody else. Everybody else was other. Does this help you to understand why Jonah was so opposed to telling the Assyrians that they might receive God's mercy? Jonah was saying to himself, those people are the enemy. They aren't Jews. They don't deserve God's mercy. So forget it, God. I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do. I will not bring them a message of the mercy of God. Loyalty to his race and loyalty to his God were in conflict for Jonah. And what did Jonah choose to be loyal to above everything else? His race. He chose to support his race over taking God's love and his mercy to his enemies. Now, are there still racists today, like Jonah, who will choose loyalty to their race above loyalty to God? Absolutely there are. So what can help us as Christians to overcome such racism in our hearts? It is understanding what your true race as Christians is. So let's read together out loud from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, and let's see what our race is. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what does Peter say your race is as a Christian? How are you to be identified? You are a what? A chosen race. Yes, you might be white or black or Hispanic or Asian or Jewish. That is part of your identity. But once you become a Christian, 
your most important identity is that you are now part of the chosen race. You have been chosen by God and adopted into his very family. You have been chosen by God, not because of any good works that you do or not because of your race. You have been chosen simply because of God's incredible grace and mercy. He loves you because he loves you. You are a child of God. That is your identity as a Christian. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful that that's who we are? God's family members? And if God chose to embrace you, you in turn can embrace the other, no matter what their race is. Skin color does not matter to a Christian. What matters is that as many people as possible become part of God's chosen race and become part of God's family. You can get your identity from your race when you fail to embrace the other. You can also get your identity from your place when you fail to embrace the other. In verse 8, the sailors asked Jonah, where do you come from? What is your country? They were asking about Jonah's place. Now, Jonah does not directly answer these questions, but by saying in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, Jonah did indirectly talk about his place. Since he was a Hebrew, he would have come from the land where the Hebrews lived, in Israel. And since he feared the Lord, Israel's God, this statement also indicated that Jonah's place was in Israel. Now, clearly, there was a, a disconnect in Jonah's words. How can someone say, I fear the Lord, and at the same time completely disobey the Lord? How can someone say, I'm a worshiper of God, and yet at the very same time do exactly what God has told him not to do? Jonah's words then ring hollow, which is why the sailors could respond in verse 10, What is this that you have done? How can you be running away from your God, the God that you say made the sea and the dry land? This God is responsible for this storm, and you are responsible for this storm because you are running away from your God. And the sailors did not know that Jonah was actually running away from the other. He could not embrace the other. He could not love his enemies, the Ninevites. Jonah's identity was too wrapped up in his place and in his people. When I first moved to Maine, people quickly noticed that I talk funny. I do not speak with a proper Maine accent. And so some old-time Mainers would eventually approach me and say to me, you're from away, aren't you? Now, at first, I was kind of taken aback by these statements. On the face of it, the words meant, you are not one of us. You are not from this place. You are other. 
It took me a while to realize that these old-time Mainers were not pushing me away as the other. They just wanted to see if I could embrace them and their ways and their place. If I could embrace them and their place, they in turn would embrace me and open their arms to me. And I realized that once you have made a friend in Maine, you have a friend for life. There are few people in this world who are more loyal than Mainers. So even though I am other, by God's grace I have been embraced even here in Maine. Who knows? Maybe even people from Boston could be embraced in Maine. Maybe that's asking too much. I don't know. But I want to encourage all of you to avoid identifying people as the other simply because they are not from your place. Don't do othering to other people. To categorize people as the other is to focus on the ways that they are different from you, to focus on their strangeness, and to reduce them to these characteristics until they become less than human. And when you label someone not from your place as other, you make it very hard on yourself to embrace them as God embraces them. Let me ask you a question. What place today are most Christians in the world from? Well, you might say, well, that, that's obvious. Christianity is a, a Western religion, so most Christians are obviously from Europe or from the United States. That's where most Christians are from in this world. But the reality is that Christianity from its very beginning has always been multicultural and multiracial. Very quickly within the church, there were more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. And so today, over 60% of the population of sub-Saharan Africa identifies itself as Christian. In 30 years' time, Africa could be home to more than 40% of the world's Christians. And 10 years ago, experts said that there were around 68 million Christians in China. And those same experts are saying that in spite of the persecution against the church in China today, that within 10 years, by 2030, there will be more Christians in China than there are in the United States. And those same experts are saying that by the year 2050, China could be a majority Christian country. When you think that there's a billion people in China, that means there would be more than 500 million Christians in China. And of course, the church has also exploded with growth in both Central America and South America as well. So today, most of the world's Christians are neither white nor Western, and Christianity is getting less white and less Western every single day. I brought a picture with me today to show you a visual representation of what's happened to the makeup of the church around the world from 100 years ago, 1910 to 2010. So you can see in 1910, where were most of the Christians located? 
either in Europe or in North America, or in the Americas, including South America and Central America. But what's happened by 2010, 100 years later? Where were most of the Christians located? They were located, you see what's happened in Africa, 23% of the Christians in the world in 2010 were located in Africa, and that has only increased in the past 10 years. Also, you see what's happened to Asia. 13% of Christians come from Asia, which is wonderful. It's great to see the church growing there. And in the Americas, the church is also growing, but it's not growing here in the States. It's not growing in Canada. Where is it growing in the Americas? South of the border, right? It's growing in Central America. It's growing in South America. And so the church is exploding with growth, just not here. So the church is becoming less white and less Western every day. Should this be a surprise to us as a church? Not if you read your Bible. Okay, let's read together from Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, and let's see where the population of heaven will be coming from. Let's read together from Revelation 7 and verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So where is the church going to come from? Every nation. That's where the church will come from. So church, it is fine to get part of your identity as being from Maine. There are many things to be proud about in terms of being a Mainer. But don't be too proud of your Maine heritage or even of your American heritage. So proud that you cannot embrace the other. The truth is that the vast majority of the people that we will meet in heaven will be other. Let's learn to embrace these other children of God while we are still here on this earth so that we will be more ready to embrace them when we get to heaven. You need to get your identity then not from your race or your place. You need to get your identity from your purpose if you're going to embrace the other. In verse 10, we see that Jonah must have told the sailors about his purpose. We read at the end of that verse that the sailors knew that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah must have told the sailors then that he was a prophet of the Lord. His entire purpose in life was to tell people the word of God that God had commanded him to speak. His purpose was to bring people to reconciliation with God to bring them to repentance. Jonah was a child of God who told others how they could become children of God. But in this case, Jonah refused to obey God. The identity of Jonah's race and his place were more important to him than his identity as a child of God and of his purpose as a prophet of the Lord. And so Jonah ran. He ran away from bringing mercy to his enemies. He ran away from the other instead of embracing them as God would have him do. 
In the church today, all of us get our purpose from our Savior, Jesus. Jesus himself said that we need to bring the message of God's mercy and forgiveness to people of other nations. We, as the children of God, are to invite others to join God's family. And so let's read out loud together what Jesus said in Matthew 28 and verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So who are we to make disciples of? All nations. Jesus says our purpose in life is to make other disciples, other followers of Jesus who would then become part of Christ's family. If that is your primary purpose in life, you will, unlike Jonah, embrace the other. In the year 2004, a Dutch filmmaker named Theo van Gogh was killed by a Muslim extremist. Muslim immigration in the Netherlands had led to a lot of tension with the native Dutch. The immigrants were mostly poor, and thus crime was rising in that country. And so this murder set off a lot of anger and retaliation between the Dutch population and the immigrant population. An Islamic school was bombed. Churches and mosques took turns being destroyed by one another. In the midst of these hostilities, a Dutch pastor named Keyes Sabrandi did something radical. He walked over to his neighborhood mosque, even though he didn't know any Muslims. And then he knocked firmly on the door, loudly, until the door was answered. And then what he did was, he did what Jesus said to do in Matthew chapter 5 that we read earlier. He greeted those who were considered to be his enemies. The pastor then announced to the people there at the mosque that he would stand guard at that mosque every night until the hostilities against the mosque were over. And he and other Christians and other pastors from the Netherlands did that every night for three months until the hostilities had ceased. Now, you might think that this pastor was one of those multi-faith pastors who believes that all religions are the same, that all roads lead to God. But that was not the case for Pastor Keyes. He was a true Christian. He believed correctly that Jesus is the only way to God. And he believed correctly that the Bible is the Word of God. So why then? Why would a Christian pastor commit himself to protecting a mosque of all things? Why would he do that? Here was Pastor Key's answer. Jesus. Jesus commanded me to love my neighbor, and Jesus commanded me to love my enemy too. Loving your enemy is a hard thing to do. But Jesus tells us that we as Christians must be gracious to others because we have received grace from God ourselves. You see, Jesus is asking us to do something that he has also done himself. 
Jesus was and is other from us. Jesus, when he came to earth, was in very nature God. Jesus had the right then to exclude us from his presence. He had the right to tell us to go away. After all, he was and is completely holy, and we are full of sin. But Jesus did not exclude us. He did not treat us as other. Instead, he embraced us. He threw his arms open, and he he welcomed us. He reconciled us to himself and to God his Father. And while embracing us, he did not affirm the sin within us. He told us that we need to repent, to turn away from that sin. So Jesus did not tell us that we have the right to expect his embrace. He did not say that. No, Jesus needed to die on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven by a holy God. And that death on the cross both convicts us of our sin and at the same time assures us of his love and his pardon. The cross of Jesus, then, is the model for how we should treat those who are different from us, for those who are other. And the cross also gives you the power to embrace the other. When Jesus, the one who you thought to be other, has not treated you as other, but has given himself in love for you, how then can you treat anyone as an enemy? Jesus has given to all of us the purpose of reconciliation with God. He has given to us that purpose to bring that message of reconciliation to others. That is our identity. Children of God who tell others how they can become children of God. So let's not exclude people like Jonah did. Let's not treat people as the other. Let's follow in Jesus' footsteps and let's embrace the other. Let's pray together. Jesus, how grateful we are for your love and for your mercy toward us. Thank you that even though you are so much other than we are, you are so holy and we are so full of sin, you still embraced us. You still showed us your grace and your mercy. Lord, we pray today that you would empower us to embrace the other as you have embraced us. May we not hate our enemies, but may you empower us to do what you command us to do, to love our enemies and bring to them the message of reconciliation and pardon. In your great name we pray, amen.